Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome back to Medicus. My name is Nate, and today Neil and I are going to talk about a subject that is very near to our hearts right now, and that is step one of the United States Medical Licensing Exam, or USMLE Step 1. Don't worry, we're not here to talk about strategies or resources. We know you've heard plenty about that already. If you're looking for information on how to do well on the test, this is not the episode for you. Instead, we've invited Dr. Josh Hopps to talk about the test in general, its history, its controversies, its place in medical education, and how this test might be changing in the future. Now, even if you aren't scheduled to take the board exams this year, stay tuned. We think this conversation will be interesting for people who have already taken it or maybe even have it a couple years ahead of them. Dr. Hobbs has been the Assistant Dean of Academic Support at Loyola for the last six years. He's recently accepted a new position at Northwestern, but before he leaves, we wanted to pick his brain about the theory behind the USMLE Step 1 exam. So with that, Dr. Hobbs, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So how are you doing today, Dr. Hops? Doing great. Doing great. It's uh, always a lovely day to talk about step one. So oh, yeah. get step into one. it. Yeah. I know you've helped a lot of students at our university the past few years. I think I saw recently on the wall, you were voted like best dean of academic support for 2018 or something like that. Oh yeah. Thanks. It's, um, it, you know, it's a strange time in your careers and in many ways it's um, a low point, even though it's something people are looking forward to for years, not not in a highly excitable anticipatory sense, but in a, okay, this is coming, I need to get ready. And it's actually, it's kind of a privilege to contribute to keeping people focused, using their own data to help through their process, not let anxiety get in the driver's seat. So to me, it's a privilege to be there kind of in that low point. And I think it means that I get to form relationships with students that many other faculty don't get to because we go through something that tough and painful together. So I think today we're going to start off and talk a little bit about the history of step one, like where it came from. Why are we taking it? Could you speak to that at all? Like when step one started being part of medical curriculum? So step one has been around for a long time and it was typically one of those things that was a pro forma exam. The the pass rate was quite high, but in the early 90s and in 92 and 93 is when its current instantiation started. And the USMLE formed a relationship with the federal state medical licensing boards to standardize things so that licensure going from one state to another was more seamless, unlike attorneys having to pass bar exams in multiple states. They wanted physicians to be able to move their licensure around um, and and be mobile if they needed to. At that time, it wasn't nearly, didn't have nearly the weight it did. Uh, But over the years, it's become increasingly more clinical. Um, in, In my opinion, a lot of the evolving landscape of step one prep resources and the increasing focus of step one scores by residency program directors is, is driving that. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I'm honestly really glad in a way that we have standardized licensing, like you said, because that, I mean, that definitely changes like our, the game for positions. I mean, I know there are other, you know, ways to be certified as a medical care provider, like, you know, PAs, MPs, or DOs, and they obviously have their own 
things, but still like the fact that we can go to any state or even, can we even sometimes go to like other countries and use the MD? That's useful. Yeah, absolutely. I think that standard lets that international portability happen. There's always paperwork to go to, whether you're going from state to state or certainly to another country, but it's it's not necessarily about establishing your credentials. It's more about background checks and that kind of thing. So there's been a lot of changes to the exam. I mean, before it used to be pass-fail, and I mean, before even even before that, physicians didn't have to take it. And so it's changed over the years. Do you mind going into how has it changed? The joke that you hear from senior physicians about step was that it was, for step one, it was two weeks. For step two, it was two days. And for step three, it was a number two pencil. And that's kind of that idea that, that you're talking about where the, you know, the import of it just really was a binary outcome. You passed and you're fine, or you had to retake it. And You know, the way I think of it is um, when you look back to around the year 2000 at the national means for step one, the means were about 215 compared to what they have been the past few years in the 230, 229, 228 range. And you see UWorld come out in the mid-2000s. 2003, 4 was the year UWorld come out. And when you look at the data, you see within several years, there's a five-point jump. And that continues. And then you'll see a little bit of a dip as MBME kind of responded by starting to make the questions less um, single step and more integrated multiple step questions. And then you see another increase as other resources started to come online, like Pathoma. Then again, NBME responding by some of the changes that they've done. And I can um, talk about that um, ad nauseum. But you're seeing these constant efforts by NBME to make that score useful to residency program directors by keeping the means from shooting through the roof while medical students, of course, are trying to put themselves in the best position as possible using the great resources available to them are doing better and better. And NBME will release articles issuing literally a plea to um, reimagine the use of step one in the residency selection process at the same time that they're year after year making the test more and more difficult as a way to make that test useful for residency program directors as a a sorting tool that it wasn't originally designed to be. It's incredible because we literally have one of those articles listed on our questions to ask and it really is something that's kind of frustrating I think for us because think a lot of us have this thought of like, okay, if if they're just trying to license physicians, if they're just trying to see if we're qualified, why would they put a curve onto the test and make it so that people are guaranteed to fail? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think some of the, in, in terms of failure, the standard setting, you know, the way it typically works is they'll survey experts in medical education and ask how many students should pass and, and fail this exam. And so that's often what sets that four or five six percent failure rate is just asking okay how many failures can we tolerate rather than benchmarking it to any kind of um, outcome data for performance Um, you know step scores do predict some things they predict subsequent board passage rates but they don't predict um, there's been some uh, studies coming out of the neurosurgery and plastic surgery literature that look at how do step scores relate to future performance in their career in terms of getting tenure, publications, teaching ratings, 
um, and there's no relationship whatsoever. So it's tough because, yeah, it does predict, um, you know, ABIM passage rate or whatever the boards that people are taking are, uh, but there's a lot of, of what goes into being a good physician, a good academic physician that it just can't measure. And, and they know it can't, but they still are kind of, in my view, playing both sides of that, saying, hey, don't use it for this, but we're going to do everything we can to make it easy for it to use it in that way. Totally. And I think that goes back into the idea that, you know, it's a large organization. There could be differing views on it. I mean, I mean, there could be one executive who's out there saying, this is great for our bottom line. We're charging these students for this essential exam. And not only are we charging the U.S. medical students, we're charging the international medical students who are trying to pass it. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you know, we have someone who's kind of like taking the moral high ground saying, we shouldn't be using our test for this. We know it's not a valid test to measure residency performance. And there could even be like an internal struggle. We have no idea, actually. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that there's like this constant tug of war that's going on between the NBME and these typical prep resources that students are using, like Pathoma and Sketchy. I was just talking to a friend uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was saying that he used all the big resources like First Aid, UWorld, Pathoma, and Sketchy. He said he went over them like maybe three or four times before actually taking the exam. So he thought he knew like going into the exam, like I know what I could possibly know. And he came in with the expectation that he should do well on it. Yeah, after taking the exam, he said, you know, there were some questions on there that I've never seen before in my life. Um, And they were more clinically related. They weren't in any of the books that he was using to prepare for the exam. So what's the impetus behind having an exam that's basically evaluating students on what they don't know? My view is that that's exactly one of the steps that they've taken to keep the mean flat and to keep it below 230 because they, my, again, unsubstantiated view is that they know what's in first aid and pathoma. I'm sure their question writers are accessing those resources as well. And they're pushing outside of those for content to have questions at that discriminating level. And that's the thing on a test, you don't know. We, We hear that there are test items, experimental items on the test, and we don't know how those are counting. But Having those in there gives them a great way. They have a captive audience to test their items, but it's also messing with somebody's morale during the test to have these questions on there. It's the biggest test day of their life, and they're getting these items that they've never heard of, some of the things. And I think my view is that the purpose is to see who can emerge through that testing experience, not rattled and stay focused and just move on, try and practice your mindfulness and imagine that thing you've never heard of on a river just floating away out of your sight. But it really, it does get to people, I think. And I think that that and other steps are really put students in a tough position. Yeah. In a way, I'm kind of glad that they do validate their questions with those things before they give them Mm -hmm. like a twist graded. I remember... That's something that I always struggle with, exams that are made by professors, is that I don't believe their exams are necessarily validated. Sometimes you look at the questions they give, and I'm like, this could be right, this could be right. I don't trust you to like have created a valid exam where this answer is 100% right, and we should all know it. So that's the one thing I do like about these standardized exams, is that they have people who go through and like say, okay, all the students got this one right if they knew the information. And yeah. 
So I guess it's, it's like a good and bad thing. It's yeah, it, uh, for a test at that level, it's absolutely critical that their items are tested, and they have all kinds of metrics that they use point by serial to see if you're getting easier questions right, but then you're missing some of the hard ones, or if you're getting the hard ones right and you're missing some of these other easier questions, then probably there's something about that question that isn't yeah. isn't right. It's not what you're looking for. So that's that's crucial. You're, you're definitely right about that. Do you personally think that it's a good measure of uh, medical decision-making ability? I know there's been like a lot of controversy around that. And I feel like if you speak to some residents nowadays, they're like, you know, I don't even remember half the stuff that I studied for on step one. You know, I don't know which gene does this. I don't know. So, I mean, what, what is your personal take on that? I think that... In, in some ways, for, for a lot of people, it may do that. But I also think that there are, there are people who it, it doesn't measure anything except their level of test anxiety. Um, so, for example, I've worked with students who struggled on step one and are, then become chief residents in their areas when they match. And I think that's a better acknowledgement of their medical decision-making than struggling on step one. And so I think there's an, that element of experiential learning that can't be captured on a multiple-choice test like that. Uh, can you make good decisions if you have a dearth of knowledge? Probably not. But I think it, that, again, points us back to that pass-fail cutoff rather than gradations of, you know, are you better at 260 than you are at 240? I, no, I, I, I don't think so at all. 260 to, you know, 170, yeah, maybe that's an argument that you could make, but sure. um, not at smaller um, smaller increments. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all kind of agree with that, I think. I don't think anyone's going to argue against that. So, so far we've talked about how step one is effective residency applications and how it applies to the clinical side of things. But now I think we want to transition a little bit more into the way that it's affected the first two years of medical school mm -hmm. for most students. And there seems to be kind of like a controversy, like a yin and yang situation where a lot of people say, okay, step one is making students study straight for the test. And then the other kind of side of it is, well, it's kind of like a way to ensure that every student is learning the same thing across all the medical schools across the country. Where do you stand on this kind of like yin-yang balance? I have to balance on both sides. I mean, one of the things that I, I joke about in my conversations with students in this process is I hate having to because it can be such a downer of a place, but I have to go on Reddit and read in these yeah. threads. And there's a lot of great information in there. I think some of it's skewed and they miss some of the subtleties, but you see the effect that it has on people and how difficult it gets. So in order to understand where people are coming from, I have to know what it is that's out there that people are going to for the resources. But I also have to go and talk to the faculty who are often in, you know, in that two weeks, two days, number two pencil crowd, mm -hmm. trying to wrap their minds around this and saying, well, we don't want students studying for step one during our curriculum and trying to find some common ground or at least make it so people can take perspective and understand. So I, I th the angle that I try and take is if you're going to do step studying, start with the content that you're on and let that cumulatively push you through the curriculum as well as prepare you for step one. And then 
you know, if you're doing flashcards or some other approach like that, find a way to keep up with your reviews if, if you're going to move away from that content. So it doesn't fade on you or if you're not doing that, then work it in some other way. And then as you're solid with your risk management with that level of work and you have more bandwidth to do more, then get into review mode and kind of build up to that risk level where some people walk away from the curriculum and they can still do well in it. That's great for them, but not everybody can do that. So to me, it's always case by case and trying to get faculty to understand the pressure that, that students are under. I think there's like a lot of mixed opinions about that, about whether students should um, focus their studying on step one or should they focus on their schoolwork. Obviously, there's some students who come from the exam and they say, like, look, you know, start on step one studying as soon as you can. Uh, it's a tough exam. Do as many questions as you can just to get used to the feel of those questions. Well, maybe school administrators might tell you otherwise. They might say that, hey, you know, our curriculum uh, prepares you best for step one. What do you think? Like, you've been around students long enough. Mm-hmm. You've been around this exam long enough. What is your opinion on that? What I see, you know, I always like to bring in data and, and thinking about these kinds of things. And I think the most useful data point that we have is that first practice exam. And at Stretch, for us, it happens um, about six weeks before you guys jump into dedicated study time. What we've seen year after year is that there's a, a massive improvement in those scores. So anywhere from a 50 to low 60 point improvement, depending on just exactly how far, sometimes we shift it by a week or two and see that that makes a difference. But so does the curriculum prepare you? I think it puts a framework in place so that during dedicated, you don't have to go and teach yourself the basics, but forgetting sets in. And if we just take that exam as the baseline, but the summative assessment of the curriculum, that big of a growth tells me that, yes, the curriculum does prepare you, but there's also a huge amount of work that students have to do on top of that. There is time to do it in dedicated, but some people would rather be working on moving from low 200s instead of the upper uh, 190s, 180s to get their gain. And I get that because it's a very different thing to to jump 30 points from 190 than it is from 230. So I think that dedicated is absolutely crucial. And I think that, you know, the resources, the way they are now really set people up to do well. So I'm, I'm firmly straddling the fence on that one. But you definitely see when people have prepared that they can be in, in great shape on that first practice exam. Sometimes we think of how step one seems to be kind of like a test of test-taking ability and not as much a test of how much do you actually know. You said like students sometimes have issues with test anxiety mm-hmm. and things like that. It's almost like a test of do you have the specific skill set of being able to sit down for eight hours and concentrate or do you not? And that's kind of frustrating. And I think the MCAT is kind of a similar thing. Do you know, is there any kind of correlation between like the MCAT and step one? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very high correlation. Um, in our own analyses at Stretch, what we see, it's, it's interesting and there's, you know, lies, lies and statistics, but w- there's a high correlation between the MCAT and performance in our curriculum. There's a very high correlation between performance in the curriculum and step one. 
and uh, then also between MCAT and step one. And so there's both of those things in there, but part of it is that are you like a game day performer, strong test taker? But the other part of it is, is your study strategy solid enough to get in and take full advantage of a dedicated period? And for some people it is, and for some people it isn't, and they struggle. I think the advent of practice exams has really helped for the MCAT, people prepare themselves uh, mentally for that. We have that for step one as well to get people prepared for it uh, and try to make that as as much like test day as possible. Sure. So, you know, we were talking about some of the controversies that have been surrounding step one and the NBME earlier. Yeah, I was talking to Nate about this uh, article a couple of days ago, and it basically was talking about how maybe the how step one should be uh, pass-fail system. You know, it's a very high-stakes exam that causes students a lot of tr- stress. When students could be using that time to maybe explore maybe what specialty they're interested in or working on doing a physical exam well. The response to that was from the M- NBME that, you know, all that is nice. You know, having a pass-fail system would be nice for student wellness and everything, but we feel like students would have too much time on their hands that they probably be focusing on something like Instagram or Netflix. And I kind of, I don't know, yeah. I had a very... A lot of students, I think, yeah. push back on that like yeah. negative reaction to having someone say that you are not mature enough to use your free time wisely. Yeah, and I had a very bad reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't think that was a very good response personally, what do what do you think about that? Yeah, that was that was incredibly unfortunate, and I think I just can't imagine what was going through their minds to actually put that in writing. And they did come and walk it back, but that's one of those things that once it's out there, it kind of gives a window into your mindset, which is apparently kids these days, you know, one mm-hmm. of those kinds of things. And it's just to me, it's bizarre, and I think it. You know, like we were talking about earlier, you never know, is there a diversity of opinion in the NBME about what it's useful for, or is there groupthink? And, you know, they're a corporation and they're set up to make money and they're very good at that. And sometimes even when you start off with noble virtues, you get overly focused on maintaining that bottom line and it kind of blinds you or distances you from your job, which is bringing in new professionals into the system. And that definitely does not affirm their belief in professional identity of their customers, essentially captive customers, but they're wanting your money. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting because this test is like the culture of it has kind of expanded outside of step one. And even like, I think it's the internal medicine licensing exam has gotten more difficult and more difficult recently. And they're failing more and more doctors and, the doctors are pushing back and saying, what, what's going on? Like, I'm, I've been practicing for 20 years. How can you fail me on this? And the argument is they're trying to justify their own existence by failing people. They have to create a curve in order to justify their own existence. Because if everyone passed it, you might say, who cares if my doctor's board certified everyone passes that exam? It's just a whatever. But if people fail it, you can go out and say, hey, these doctors, they don't know. They're not worthy to practice. And that's just, I mean, it's kind of scary for us. And we can't really control it. Yeah, I mean, that whole, the maintenance of certification situation was a huge mess for 
um, the Internal Medicine Board. And I think they, I mean, I get it because the previous system wasn't great. You just, you know, you would sign a form at a conference that you went to about CE or you maybe read some articles or something. Um, and they're trying to apply learning science principles and get people to engage in doing different things. But the data behind what they're doing um, wasn't all that uh, comforting in terms of it bringing long-lasting changes either to um, people remaining qualified. There is a lot of data showing that people's level of qualification does drift over time, and I think that's what yeah. they're responding to. But, uh, you know, again, there's a little bit of tone deafness there. And we saw it with Step 2 CS as well. Students a few years ago started a petition out of Harvard to abolish Step 2 CS and totally backfired. I signed the petition myself. I was, <laughs> I was ready for it to go. But there was a publication in academic medicine that pushed back a little bit from perspective of schools. Um, I, I felt like at Stritch, we, we have that same exam up here and make that own determination for ourselves about our students. It's a graduation requirement, um, but some schools don't have that and, and may want something like that in there. And BME reviewed the, the pass-fail um, determination and ended up making the test more difficult, and we'll see what happens to that pass-fail rating as a result you know, whether that's responding to how good CS is as a test or we need to provide some evidence so we can get this, you know, 1,300 per student. I mean, do the math on that. It's incredible. Um, it's, it's an expensive test to run. You know, you've got SPs there all day and that kind of thing. But it, uh, it's unfortunate that, that that effort seems to have backfired for now. You know, it kind of makes you think whether NBME is like this money-making organization. You know, Josh Lewis, who's also another host on this pod, uh, he sent me this article by Brian Carmody, in which Brian Carmody talks about how between 2001 and 2017, NBME's revenue has tripled from $47.5 million to $154 million, and how for Step 2 CS, the pass rate is basically 96%, yet they're charging students $1,300, like you mentioned, you know, I was thinking about it like wellness, wellness. Is this just a term that they throw out to students just to make it seem like, you know, they're very uh, interested in uh, student well-being or, uh, or not? So. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be that, that MBME uh, is leaving wellness up to individual schools um, through the, the LCME um, you know, to oversee those wellness efforts. And that's probably the way they think about wellness. But in terms of the climate that it creates in the first and second year, uh, I think it puts, it, it almost creates an adversarial system between students and faculty. Faculty are trying to prepare students uh, for their work on the floors. Students want to prep for step one. And it's a tension that's that's rampant throughout the first two years, and the more faculty try and push back against that, the more they're viewed as out of touch and uncaring by students. And you know, it really makes it makes work as as an administrator in medical schools tough if you don't expend a lot of effort to to um, understand both sides and 
you know, back to Reddit again, you can see that like, you know, any mention of a med school administrator and they're like scum of the earth and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe it's like that at other schools. I don't, haven't seen that myself, but yeah, it's tough. And I think it wittingly or unwittingly, it's created this adversarial system or a system where students are engaged in their own parallel curriculum as there was a great paper out of Michigan by Jesse Burke-Raffel about that parallel curriculum, both the time and the cost of it for students. So they're doing this work and hiding it from schools or doing it in the open instead of the curriculum or in addition to, and the toll that takes is immense as well. I mean, it just goes back to that study for the test, yin-yang question. Mm-hmm. Some schools have made steps to try to make the student experience a little bit smoother and like well for example one thing that people have done is make curriculum pass fail uh during the first two years what's your opinion on that how that affects step one or even how it just you know affects student wellness the data for that are are firm in support of its effect on wellness well many schools have made that transition including thankfully stretch a few years ago um, after a few years of fighting for it, it does show that it, it helps wellness. Um, and there's a non-inferiority finding for step scores where typically there's not a change, sometimes slight improvement, but not a significant one. So I think it lets people make choices about, you know, where's my point of diminishing returns studying for this block? And what am I going to do with my time after that? Is it more research? Is it step one? Is it the service project I have? Is it obsessively updating your Instagram account according to NBME? <laughs> or what is it that you're going to do? And I don't, our students are not at, at the beach or whatever. They're working on one of those other things to, to keep, to keep moving. Chicago does that for you. It's too cold to experience <laughs> the outdoors. So you have to just stay inside and study. Yeah. I'm actually not even joking. I, when I was like doing those typical pre-med things where looking at the schools and like looking at those stupid reviews, people put it and someone literally put that on there saying it's too cold <laughs> in the winter to experience outdoor activities. So you'll have nothing to do with studies. So there you go. Go to Chicago for med school. Yeah. That's a strange, a strange bonus. I don't know. Well, so another school, Yale, has taken even a step further, and they've just eliminated all of the tests entirely. I'm not entirely sure of their situation, but I think what they've done is they've made the tests uh, optional, or maybe not even optional, but anonymous. So you take the test to see if you know the material, but it's not graded, and it's not like no one knows what score you got. What do you think about that? I think it could definitely work, I think, um, for a subset of people. I don't think it's one of those things that, you know, like for me personally, to put myself in that position as a student, I work best to deadlines and I need that kind of periodic structure and that kind of assessment to hold me accountable. From a learning science perspective, we know that just taking tests doesn't help. It's not um, in itself. It doesn't improve people's scores. You need that feedback element to actually learn. Um but it's, you know, the point of tests is to make people study. And if you have a self-regulated, um, a set of self-regulated learners, they're going to be fine um, because they have those goals that are going to keep them focused. But there will definitely be a number of students who probably would flounder a little bit in that situation. And my guess would be that that they've got advising in place for people who maybe want a little more feedback and 
want to to dive in and use their data to help move them forward. I think that's a huge part of deliberate practice as a learner is using your own feedback and your own data to refine your approach, to find your gaps and fill them. And as long as there's a system in place to do that, I think people will be fine. I'll be, I'd be interested to see, because that's one of those things, obviously, any, anything like that that happens out of Yale, um, the question is always going to be about generalizability. So sure. we'll see how that plays out. I'll be really curious. Yeah. So, so far, we talked about the history of the test. We talked about the validity and theory behind the exam. And we even touched upon um, student wellness. So I just wanted to transition to talk about the future of the test and maybe some trends. So traditionally, step one is taken after about your two years of preclinical training, but some schools have started to rethink this and their students are taking the exam earlier um, than that two-year mark or uh, possibly later, such as after third year. Why do you think more schools are, are changing this up? I think it's in response to the changes NBME is making that, that we've been talking about to make the test harder and keep the mean flat. Uh, the questions are getting more and more clinical and asking clinical questions to people who haven't had a ton of clinical experience is not fair. It, it puts people in a position who learn well about those things in the abstract from a clinical vignette. They're going to be fine, no big deal. There are a lot of people who really would do better with an experiential component to learning those those clinical vignettes and have a personal episodic memory of being in that situation rather than having done a bunch of questions or been in a PBL session or whatever the case might be. So I think it's the um, they're trying to get their students the clinical experience to be ready for the clinical questions that are on step one. So, I mean, I highly doubt that every school in the nation is going to transition towards taking step one after third year or something. So for um, those those universities that have their students taking uh, step one after their third year, are they at more of a benefit? Um, do they have a sort of an advantage in taking the exam over students that may be taking it after the second year? In my opinion, that's a, a pretty clear yes. There are some caveats to that, but um, there's there's a group of eight schools who were early adopters on this who've uh, published some of their findings. And again, it's a mix of schools that are, we wonder about how the, those findings are going to generalize. Columbia, Duke, et cetera, um, are in that group. But there's some other schools like FIU, who are recruiting students in a, in a totally different way according to their mission. And they're having um, similar findings. So Duke, for example, I think they've been that way for more than 20 years, maybe 30 years almost at this point. But schools like FIU also, from the beginning, they see their step one means up, up around 240. Um, a lot of these schools have seen 10-point jumps, which in the statistical analysis counts as a moderate jump, a modest jump. Um, I think um, you talk to any student about a 10-point jump in their score, and that, that would not be considered a modest jump. So yeah, a lot of these schools have seen um, low double-digit increases making that transition. So I do think it puts them at a disadvantage. The disadvantage might be, you know, number one, you're having to probably take step one and step two pretty much back-to-back. -back. 
if step one doesn't go as well as you would have hoped, then your plans for a very competitive specialty that you've been working on throughout your clerkships might be in some trouble without a lot of time to reconfigure and and come up with uh, another plan. But I think fewer people are going to be in that position because they're probably going to do better on step one. And this is something that that I hope uh, we find a way to test. I think that often students who struggle on step one are the exact students who will benefit the most from experiential learning and that that can give them a huge boost um, going into step one. If, if they can remember a patient they worked with who has prescribed that drug um, instead of you know, having to remember some chart or something and, and apply that. So my hope is that across the distribution, students who are often lower performers will get that bump that they need. So they're not struggling to pass, they're, they're struggling to get a better score uh, and, and move up the distribution. There's also been a trend in the other direction where students are taking it earlier before that two-year mark. What do you have to say about that? I definitely think there are some there are some people you know in this group, like like most medical students, you're great test takers and that's in your favor. We have fantastic resources for step one and for for schools that have a pass fail curriculum that maybe does have a fair amount of overlap. Most schools do. Um, every school does have a lot of overlap with the step one review materials. But if I think in that scenario where you can do well in a pass-fail curriculum while studying intensively for step one, it can actually work pretty well for quite a few people. Man, these, these teacher trends are so interesting to us because we're doing what we're doing. No matter what, we're taking our tests right. in like yeah. four months, or is it three months? I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> But well, it's interesting to see what our younger brothers and sisters will do. So I guess just to kind of close everything off, do you have anything that you would want to change about step one if you could? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about that the past week or two in my new position is what would my job be like if step one were to go pass fail, which is something that I would love to see happen. And I do think it would be totally different. I think the change in students' engagement in the medical school curriculum would be great. Um, so that's, you know, that's my first thing is to see step one go pass fail. I'd love to see NBME just be more transparent. Their opacity is is very frustrating. Uh, you know, just for example, in, in this past um, week or 10 days, they've changed their step one practice exam strategy, and they're pulling five of them and releasing three new ones right away, two to come later. As an advisor for people in that process, I have nothing I can tell them except we just don't know anything about this test. And I'm always learning from my students, so this is nothing new, but I'm telling them, hey, I'm going to be asking you how this practice exam goes. So it puts us in a really tough position. I would just love some information from them about how their psychometrics work, suggestions about how to use those tests to advise students in the process, and some changes in how the feedback is given so people can get a little more granular in what they're looking at. I think they've heard that. I think they have responded by giving correct answers on practice exams and those kinds of things. But in so doing, they've also raised the prices of the tests, dropped a lower, they didn't raise the price, but they dropped a lower level 
um, price. I think some outside accountability would also be extremely important so that we can have some understanding of what goes on and and that decision-making level of the NBME. Because right now, I think you've got a whole generation of students who don't trust systems in general. To fight the power. And, <laughs> and they see NBME as the man, and they're going to want to fight the power. And so I do think those changes will come at some point. When? That's, that's the bigger question. And, and is it something that has to happen that will be a sentinel event or is it a shift over time as as you all become faculty and engage in medical education and become medical education leaders and make those changes from within can you stomach it enough to get in the system and work within it for change infiltrate the nbme neil right. that's your job now i'm putting that to it's your <laughs> career path you're going to infiltrate the nbme and make it pass fail for everyone who comes after you uh, it's been a life goal of mine to do that, so I wouldn't mind it. I knew you wanted to go into academic medicine. <laughs> Not so much. Nah, I don't want to go into academic medicine. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to help my fellow students out, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Hobbs, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. I think everyone who's listening is definitely probably on the edge of their seat trying to you know figure out what this exam <laughs> is even about. I think it's just something that caused so much stress. Was it Veer Schlansky made a joke? beginning of our year that if you talk to an M2, if you want to get their interest, just use the word step one and they'll be on the edge of their seat. I mean, it's totally true. We're all just thinking about it constantly. Yeah. I feel like if anybody comes up to me and asks me about it, I'll just have a a lot of hot takes, you know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Step one hot takes are are popular. And I think that says a lot about the pervasiveness of that mentality and how could it not affect the way you engage in your day-to-day life as a medical student? Yeah, it's definitely intriguing. But once again, we'd like to thank you for coming on. And, uh, you know, you've been around a lot of students. You've been around this exam for quite some time now. So I don't think there would be anybody better to uh, interview regarding this topic. So once again, thank you. Yeah, happy to do it. It's an honor to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And to all of our listeners out there, thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our lovely listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient, doctor, relationship is formed and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.